0: This is the, waves. This, this is is the, the waves. waves. this is the Waves. This is the Waves. This is the Waves. This is the
1: Waves. Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism and the Supreme Court. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Mark Joseph Stern, a staff writer for Slate covering courts and the law.
0: And me, Daya Lithwick. I am a senior editor at Slate, and I cover the courts.
1: Today, we're talking about Amy Coney Barrett's first term, which just wrapped up this month. Justice Barrett notoriously replaced Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the court, solidifying a 6-3 to conservative majority. And today, we'll be talking about what impact uh, her votes had on the cases that the court decided and also the cases that the court chose not to decide.
0: You know, I'm sitting with two things, and, and it's sort of interesting to me. One, last October, November, you and I were running around houses on fire, houses on fire. She's going to do all these dreadful things. And two, now we're sitting in the midst of a raft of mainstream media views that Barrett turned out to be really moderate and temperate and centrist and maybe not all that different from RBG after all. So maybe just in terms of table setting, were we wrong then or are we wrong now? (laughs)
1: I don't think we're wrong at all.
0: Let's recall at Justice Barrett, then Judge Barrett's confirmation hearings, the Senate Democrats chose to make it about the Affordable Care Act. And so what we saw, right, was days and days and days of Senate Democrats holding up, you know, huge posters of children who were going to be thrown off their health insurance because of Justice Barrett. And that didn't materialize for reasons we're going to talk about in a minute. The Affordable Care Act was not struck down. But I do think there is this problem with hindsight and foresight. In other words, the choice to say we're going to litigate Amy Coney Barrett's possible impact on the court before she's on the court really does, I think, occlude what the real conversation was. And two, we spent a lot of time talking about Roe. And it didn't materialize because there was no abortion case on the docket. So I just think the point, let's make this as a sort of leaping off point. A lot of the things that are allowing people to say right now, look how shockingly temperate and moderate and centrist Justice Barrett is, are because either – The kinds of things we've been worried about all along, Barrett on guns, Barrett on abortion, Barrett on dismantling the administrative state, didn't really happen this year. Oh, by the way, they might happen next year. And two, because some of the things that we used as templates, Amy Coney Barrett is gunning for health insurance, actually didn't happen. Is that fair?
1: I think so, absolutely. I think it's important to step back and say that she has been on the bench for about nine months, right? She may well be at the Supreme Court for the next 30 years. And so the fact that we are all racing to take in a few data bytes and conclude that she is one way or another, um, that is our problem. That is our desire to craft a narrative right out of the gate. She has decades to build her legacy and to await the big cases to come before her. She doesn't need to reach out and grab every single one. And so the fact that she had a somewhat limited buffet of options this term does not mean that in the future she will not swing far to the right and drag the court with her. So I'm, very glad that you teed that up for us. And I really am looking forward to getting into it. But before we do, we have a brief word from our sponsors. So, Dahlia, let's talk about that confirmation hearing back in October, a somewhat traumatic time. Justice Ginsburg had just died. The election was right around the corner. And as you noted, Democrats chose to make it all about the Affordable Care Act and say, well, if this individual is confirmed, she could take away health care from tens of millions of people, including all of these uh, wonderful children and individuals who are so deserving of health care. And I'm curious, looking back now, what what do you make of that strategy, of that introduction of Amy Coney Barrett to the world by Democrats?
0: Yeah, I've been really thinking about that, Mark. And I think in some sense it goes to that predictive foresight and hindsight. In other words, the Democrats made a choice. They didn't quite know how to attack Judge Barrett. They knew, we should note, that from her confirmation hearings uh, for her job at the Seventh Circuit, the federal appeals court where she had sat for three years, they couldn't touch a lot of the issues that were at the heart of what they were really worried about, right, which is her religious views and what she's written about the right to abortion generally, but also just things that surfaced during the confirmation hearings about how early and often uh, she was saying things like life begins at conception and how really involved she was both in a judicial project to say that stare decisis or precedent just doesn't matter. So there's that, that she just doesn't have a lot of qualms about reversing cases. So they weren't willing to talk about how she thought about precedent. Also, she she wouldn't answer. They weren't really willing to say, how does your view about reproductive freedom of, and reproductive rights braid into the way you think about your job as a jurist. She had explicitly written about that, right? We know that she has put that into evidence before. Dems didn't want to touch that either. And that combined with the fact that she simply wouldn't answer questions. I mean, questions like very fundamental questions about, can the president <laughs> stop the election? Uh, you know, fundamental questions about things that are totally orthogonal to her own job as a justice. And so I think all of that meant that Dems were sort of boxed in, that they chose to make this about the Affordable Care Act because they wanted it to be a kitchen table objection to Barrett that everybody could understand. It's not complicated. I don't have to explain Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. I can just say she's taking your health care away. But in the end, the fact that that didn't materialize, <laughs> the fact that she happily signed on with the 7-2 to majority that kicked away the Affordable Care Act case, I think made the Dems look a little dumb. You? I think
1: it's worth noting that Dems did touch the religion issue during Barrett's confirmation hearing to the Seventh Circuit, to the lower court, and it was like an electric fence and they got electrified, right? Dianne Feinstein said, the dogma lives loudly within you, and a celebrity of the right was born. There were mugs and shirts and headbands you could buy that said, the dogma lives loudly within you. She became Amy Coney Barrett became a kind of hero to the right because she was supposedly persecuted for her religious beliefs, for belonging to a religious organization called People of Praise. Some commentators asked questions about and immediately the White House and its allies framed all of that as anti-Catholic animus, right? And so, a few years later, by the time she was there for a job interview for the Supreme Court, Democrats had been so scarred by that, I think, that they really would not touch it with a ten-foot pole, as you noted, and that did leave them boxed in. Uh, and And I guess they made the choice: let's talk about health care because, like you said, it's not complicated, and also it doesn't raise these fraught issues the way that abortion reproductive freedom does. We don't have to get into the whole question of anti-Catholic animus and no one will be able to accuse us of hating her because she's Catholic. Of course, conservatives did still accuse Democrats of hating her because she's Catholic, but that's just completely unavoidable.
0: Let's put a name on that. That was Josh Hawley uh, setting up the confirmation hearings to say Democrats are going to ask about Griswold versus Connecticut, and that's a dog whistle about how much they hate religious people, right? That was explicitly shot across the bow.
1: And what Hawley did, I think, was scummy, but I think it was also relatively canny because it worked and scared Democrats away from asking hard questions. So all they asked about was health care, and I guess we should get into the ACA case this term. Essentially, this was, a, a, I think, a really frivolous, ridiculous case where the state of Texas, joined by a bunch of other conservative states, argued that the entire Affordable Care Act became unconstitutional after Congress zeroed out the penalty for people who don't purchase health insurance. We don't need to get into the details because I think just a brief description illustrates why it's such a nutty theory. And I will say at the time, I was harshly critical of Democrats for seizing on this case because I said, look, this is a ridiculous case. And the mere fact that total partisan hacks in the lower courts have embraced Texas's theory does not mean that this is going to get five votes on the Supreme Court. And my fear was she would, you know, say, OK, this is too nutty for me. I'm just going to kick this case to the road. And then Republicans would jump up and dance around and say, hey, Democrats, you accuse this woman of being out to kill the Affordable Care Act. But guess what? She had the opportunity and she she didn't, so she must be moderate. And that just, that framing feels totally wrong to me, but it's the inevitable result of Democrats using the ACA case as the litmus test for Amy Coney Barrett's radicalness.
0: This term, I think you and I agree, in a lot of the big blockbuster cases, including the Affordable Care Act, the court decided not to decide. They navigated through, and we'll talk about Fulton in a minute, they wa- really navigated through choppy waters, not by doing liberal things, but by doing close to nothing. And that is the bulge at the center of the court right now. That is Barrett and Kavanaugh and the chief justice saying we're smart enough to realize that if we came out the shoot with guns blazing, overturning everything, radically reinterpreting the law, striking down the ACA, granting massive, massive privileges to religious dissenters to violate civil rights laws, the American public would have been like, huh, maybe we really need a court commission that would do something and expand the court. So I just think they are savvy and they are careful watchers and they have a long game. Alito, Thomas, sometimes Gorsuch, not so much. That's what we're looking at, not at a bunch of liberals at the center of the court.
1: Now, with all of this that we've said, I think there's one big exception, and that's the COVID religious liberty cases, right? Because in in some ways, one of the most major decisions the court issued this term, one of the biggest breaks from precedent, was a shadow docket decision that uh, blocked these California restrictions on houses of worship during COVID lockdown. And that, oddly enough, changed the law of religious liberty more than Fulton versus Philadelphia, which was a normal case decided in the normal way.
0: Let's lay out what the shadow docket is.
1: Yeah, so so we all know the normal Supreme Court cases where there's tons of briefing and they hold oral arguments and we all write about it and get excited and then the justices retreat into their cone of silence and a few months later they issue the decision and we know how every single justice voted and there's opinions and majority opinions and concurrences and dissents and all that. That is the normal docket. Now we are talking about the shadow docket, which is a totally separate thing, which are these cases that come to the court on an emergency posture where the parties below are saying, this is really, really urgent. We can't wait for the normal process. It takes too long. There's not nearly full briefing, right? Minimal briefing. There's no oral arguments. And the Supreme Court issues an order or sometimes an actual ruling where we don't always know how every justice voted, where the majority opinion is quite often unsigned, Where we have to guess to figure out which five justices actually made up the majority of the court. It's all done, as the name suggests, in the shadows. And this is how every single COVID religious liberty decision came down as a shadow docket order. You know, these were the cases where before Barrett joined, they all went 5 4 against the churches. The Supreme Court, with Roberts joining the four liberals, continually said, We are not going to change the rules for churches. States have broad authority. To protect public health, and we are not going to change the rules sitting in our you know closed courthouse here in d c and Then, when Barrett replaced Ginsburg, everything flipped, and the Decisions started going five to four, sometimes six to three, in favor of the houses of worship, blocking COVID restrictions with the liberals and sometimes Chief Justice Roberts dissenting. And this all culminated in the decision of Tandon versus Newsom, where the Supreme Court really changed the game of religious liberty, thanks to Amy Coney Barrett's vote. She was the fifth vote. It was a five to four decision. And here the Supreme Court said that anytime there's an exception to any law, if there's an exemption or an accommodation for any kind of secular purpose or person or business or organization, that same exemption has to be given to religious organizations and religious people and religious businesses. So if a bike shop can stay open during COVID, then a church has to be able to stay open. And it doesn't matter that people are in and out of a bike shop in two minutes and people linger in churches for hours singing uh, because the secular exemption exists, the religious exemption has to exist too. And that precedent shattering five to four unsigned decision came down through the shadow docket and received relatively little coverage, I think, because it was so abnormal and did not follow the normal protocol that we're used to when we're talking about Supreme Court decisions.
0: That's right. Our our friend Steve Vladek has written a lot about the shadow docket for us at Slate, and he noted that this was probably the most consequential religious liberty decision that was made since 1990 at the Supreme Court, and that, oh, it happened in the shadows in an unreasoned order without as you say, uh, briefing without argument, without real reasoning at the part of the court that explained to lower courts what the rule was. We just saw the rule change, as you said. Uh, Now, any state or municipality that puts into effect a lockdown order in an existential global pandemic, if they make an exemption for nail salons or bike shops, uh, the exemption goes to churches too. And that is profoundly, I think, without getting into the weeds of employment division and religious liberty cases. But I think it is a profound upending of how religious liberty has been analyzed at the court. And it happened with nobody noticing. And a lot of what happened in the shadows this year was so, so, so consequential and profound. And because it just slipped out in late-night orders, uh, the press didn't necessarily give it the attention it needed. And the court kind of ignored it. Uh, When the court analyzed Fulton, they act as though they hadn't already fundamentally altered the rules of religious liberty.
1: And radically altering those rules in a shadow docket five to four decision is not something a moderate would do, right? So that alone, that data point alone should be proof enough to put to bed the canard that Amy Coney Barrett is a moderate. No, no moderate, no judge with a genuine moderate bent would ever manipulate a a court's rules, really break a court's rules to uh, affect such a radical shift. And yet that's what Barrett did. And we know she was the fifth vote here because even Chief Justice Roberts, who was Genuinely a good friend to religious freedom and even religious exemptions, he dissented from from Tandon from the decision we're talking about. Uh, and I noticed in so many of these end of the term wrap up pieces, uh, when journalists were giving their breakdown of how divided the court was and how unanimous the court was, they excluded shadow docket decisions. So they say, oh, there were so few five to four decisions, but that's only in the normal cases. These shadow docket cases were quite frequently five to four, but because they aren't being factored into the stats, nobody notices them, and the end of term wrap up pieces create the false impression, the false narrative that the court is more unanimous and more in agreement on major major issues. Than it actually is. So we're going to take a break here. Uh, but if you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more from Dalia and myself on another topic, check out our Sleep Plus segment, Gateway Feminism, where today Dalia and I will talk about one thing that helped make us feminists. I will be talking about the Berenstain Bears. Dalia, what will you be
0: talking about? I'm going to be talking about Polly Murray.
1: A few months ago, I was talking to Mary Ziegler about Amy Coney Barrett. Um, Mary Ziegler is a fantastic professor of law at Florida State University. She covers uh, abortion law and abortion history. And she told me that she thinks Amy Coney Barrett wants to be perceived as a serious intellectual. That Amy Coney Barrett doesn't want to be perceived as a sort of instrumental, transactional vote that Republicans sort of crammed onto the court at the last minute to further their agenda, that she is a really brilliant person who wants to be perceived as an independent, neutral, thoughtful institutionalist. And for that reason, she wasn't going to be in a rush to affect her own agenda, which would include probably ending the right to an abortion. Now, Mary said that to me just a few weeks before the Supreme Court took up a case that is a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade, which the court will hear next term and may well use to end the constitutional right to abortion with Amy Coney Barrett's vote as potentially the decisive one but I still think that Mary was on to something there and this has really informed my own view I do think that Barrett cares about how she's perceived unlike somebody like Sam Alito or Neil Gorsuch who truly do not care how the press and the public think about them I do think that Barrett wants to be seen as this kind of professorial thoughtful maybe understated uh, but quietly brilliant jurist I don't know though if that's the person we've seen in action over the last nine months on the bench, and I'm very curious what you think.
0: I do think that what was seen as resounding statesmanship and centrism was Barrett's decision to write a concurrence in what ended up being a 9-0 decision that looked as though, hey, the court's not making any definitive claims about this balancing of religious liberty on the one hand, civil rights on the other. It looked like that was happening. And what Barrett got feted for was the centrist, moderate concurrence she wrote saying, I'm not going to overturn a decades-old precedent. That's what she did. She got feted, as you've been saying throughout, for not doing the thing that people thought she was going to do. And then instead of saying, well okay, A, as you're saying, why was that strategic? And B, did she effectively do that in the shadow docket anyway, in the COVID cases? We're just sitting here saying, man, she's no different from RBG. And I think that that (laughs) is a function of, as we've said from the beginning, you know, the way we do confirmation hearings, unfortunately, on both sides, is a lot of sort of sky is falling projections about what's going to happen. And when that doesn't materialize, it's like, hey, maybe she really is for the adoptive same-sex parents in this case, which is like absolutely materially not true. But I think that there is a very, very cartoonish sense still going into next term when abortion, as you say, is on the chopping block, that if Amy Coney Barrett doesn't write the sentence, Roe v. Wade is overturned, she will have been a moderate. And that's just the way we construct the narrative around the court. And I think you and I have said, and I started by saying this, this is a person who doesn't believe in precedent, doesn't believe that Roe was correctly decided, has said this much, has said this should go to the states to decide, doesn't isn't willing to say Griswold versus Connecticut is super precedent and binding. She doesn't have to write the sentence Roe v. Wade is unconstitutional and herein overturned in order for abortion to be fundamentally inaccessible in the many, many states where there is only one clinic. And so I think that we've just yet again set this up as a game that she can only win. Uh, and then when she does the tiniest feints to, hey, today in Fulton, I'm not overturning a 1990 case, that we say, like, man, she loves those adoptive same sex <laughs> parents in Philadelphia.
1: Yeah. So, okay. So let's flesh out the case. So this makes more sense, right? So Fulton versus Philadelphia is a case about uh, a Catholic social services agency that participates in Philadelphia's foster care system. And specifically here works to screen and certify prospective foster parents to tell the city, hey, these folks will be good parents. They check all these boxes. They should be able to foster. And this agency refuses to work with same-sex couples. They don't like them. They don't believe in their marriage and so on. They say, we will, Will not screen or certify same-sex couples. The city of Philadelphia says, okay, well, the problem here is that by turning away prospective foster parents, you would be shrinking the pool of loving homes in which children can be placed. So we are going to let your contract expire and not give you more taxpayer dollars to discriminate against same-sex couples. And in fact, it's our policy, it's our rule, it's our law that all of our uh, contractors have to treat LGBTQ people equally. The Supreme Court comes in and says – Actually, no. Philadelphia violated the free exercise clause when it ended this contract, but did so on a really bizarre, kind of flimsy, narrow basis. Uh, The Supreme Court, by a six to three vote, said that In fact, the city had a lot of discretion to waive non-discrimination policies, even if it didn't exercise that discretion. And so this non-discrimination rule wasn't really generally applicable. And so in short, the city didn't have a, a truly compelling interest in enforcing it. That was a dodge, as everyone recognized. And I do think you know, the the Barrett concurrence in this case may be the most important opinion of them all, right? Because Barrett joined by Kavanaugh and in part by Stephen Breyer, right, separately to say, yeah, I'm going along with the majority. I don't love this precedent that's not so protective of religious liberty, a decision called Employment Division versus Smith from 1990. You know, I'm not in love with that decision. I don't know that it's right, but I'm not willing to overturn it yet. I'm not sure what to replace it with. And because of that brief decision, which I did think was somewhat scholarly, incited to various scholarly articles and, you know, certainly uh, sounded like something a professor would say that drew a lot of attention to her. And like you said, Dahlia made a lot of people applaud on the left and say, hey, it's not the apocalypse yet. But she's got at least like 30 more years to either change her mind or take a different route to get to where conservatives want to go. And in fact, she may have already begun to do that using these shadow docket cases. So it's not clear to me if her concurrence really mattered or whether she was kind of playing everybody and managed to help craft a narrative in classic John Roberts style to make her conservatism seemed like centrism.
0: Part of my ongoing beef with Supreme Court coverage is it is so personality-driven, the personalities of the justices. And whether that was the cult of RBG, right, the tote bagification of how we think about feminism and progressive activism, or the attempt uh, on the right to co-opt the cult of RBG for Justice Barrett— I think part of the retire Justice Breyer thing, again, puts way too much importance on individuals as opposed to systemic change, right? Like things that you can do that are probably in the long term, if this is indeed a long game, a decades long game, as you point out, much more effective than um, harassing individual jurists off the court. But I think part of the problem also is that it elides really complicated questions like voting. And so maybe let's end on voting only because all the focus on, huh, Barrett and uh, Kavanaugh, are they centrists after all, I think distracts so profoundly from what just happened to voting rights. And just to tee it up, I will say this is another thing that was happening on the shadow docket. Long before we got to Brnovich, we were seeing uh, uh, orders that were changing, really, really changing doctrinal positions. They didn't necessarily command five votes and change the outcome of the 2020 election. But we were seeing, seeing feints at fundamentally changing how uh, states can oversee their own elections happening on the shadow docket. And then the term ends with, I think, two incredibly consequential decisions, both 6-3, by the way, that really in a systems way that cannot be lashed to any one justice or their personality or their face on a T-shirt, really, really, I think, imperils the project of democracy. Right? Right.
1: Absolutely. You've got all six justices in Burnovich v. DNC, the big case. Of the term, really, gutting the Voting Rights Act and sort of neutering this decades-old law that prohibits any voting restriction that results in uh, disproportionate disenfranchisement of racial minorities. So the six conservative justices take this revolutionary law that was supposed to stamp out the last vestiges of Jim Crow and prevent states from passing any kind of voter suppression measure that has a disparate impact on racial minorities and turns it into nothing right? Flattens this law into mere symbolism, creates this multi-factor test that has no relationship to the text of the law, and just manipulates it to ensure that lower courts will uphold essentially all restrictions on the franchise under what remains of the Voting Rights Act. And Barrett joined that opinion in full, and Kavanaugh joined that opinion in full. They didn't write anything else. They didn't have any concerns or qualifications. And Yet, despite casting the fifth and sixth votes, they got almost no attention, right? It, it, they That was not, oh, look at these two justices dragging the court far to the right. It was, oh, an aberration in an otherwise agreeable term, which strikes me as a fundamentally wrong way to think about a decision that constitutes an attack on the one right that is preservative of all other rights.
0: Yeah. And I think I think that very last thing you said is the thing that I, I would ask listeners to take away from this conversation, which is the kinds of cases that got an immense amount of attention this year, the swearing cheerleader, right? As you said, the Affordable Care Act that turned into nothing. The kinds of cases that got much less attention because they were wonky and technical are cases that came out on party lines that further gutted union power in one case, that, as you said, further eviscerated what's left of the Voting Rights Act. And I would commend to people, if you do nothing else this week, read Elena Kagan's dissent in Brnovich. It is from a really exceptional writer, a piece of, I think, the finest judicial craft I've seen in a long time. And this shadow docket that is chip, chip, chipping away at the right to vote, but not doing it in a way that seems like it's going to be salient until we all think about voting again in 2022. So this is, I think, the disconnect that Mark and I are sort of when we are still willing to say as we were (laughs) back in November, the sky is falling. It's because these incredibly, technical, wonky. I still don't fully understand all the ramifications of changing the test for Section 2 in the Voting Rights Act, even after podcasting with you about it, Mark, last week. I think this is the kind of stuff that is going to have the effect of making it harder to vote if you're Native American in Arizona, of making it harder to vote if you're Black in Georgia, of making it harder to vote if you're Hispanic, uh, if you're Latino in Texas. And that's the kind of stuff that we should be focusing attention on, not whether or not Amy Coney Barrett can write moderate centrist opinion when she wants to. So I guess I just think this thing that you just said, Mark, that this is the right that is protective of all other rights, was my big takeaway from this term, which is gutting voting rights, particularly when we have the filibuster still killing voting reform in the Senate, and particularly when it seems to me as though meaningful court reform is not going to happen. Killing voting rights is a way of making all that other stuff go away.
1: Before we head out, we want to give some recommendations. And Dahlia, I'm curious, what are you loving right now?
0: So this is going to sound corny, but I just want to root it in the fact that I am somehow on my fifth rental home in four years. Um, And just completely, as so, so many of our listeners are still upside down-ish in this interregnum between COVIDs um, and having my kids (laughs) go out into the world, the thing that, believe it or not, has been giving me sanity the last couple of weeks is my gorgeous Supreme Court women mug that I got from Resistance by Design. And I know it's just ridiculous to shill for a company that makes the a mug with the faces of the four Supreme Court female justices. This was the one, actually, it came out before Justice Ginsburg died and also before Amy Coney Barrett <laughs> was on the court. But somehow that has been giving me life. And I'll just say um, Resistance by Design partners with a whole bunch of amazing, amazing, amazing projects, including a whole bunch of voting rights projects. Y'all probably saw that vote mask that was everywhere last fall. That's their work. But portions of the the money from the sales of these things go to all sorts of good uh, projects that help teach people really wacky, complicated things like what gerrymandering is. So I am a big, big fan of my mug. And I have to say, particularly in the last week, Mark, as you and I have been staggering around hollow-eyed and (laughs) completely crazy about the state of the Supreme Court, my little funny mug with the faces of the first four women um, on the Supreme Court has been giving me life. What's your thing, Mark? What's your recommendation? Well, I guess keeping
1: loosely with this theme, I'm going to recommend an awesome tank top that I got recently. (laughs) that has the DC flag on it, and it says Douglas Commonwealth, which is the name that the District of Columbia will have when it does become the 51st state, because I'm choosing optimism here. It will stay DC, but it will be Douglas Commonwealth instead of the District of Columbia. As a proud Washingtonian, I feel it's important to both sort of flaunt my support for statehood, but also normalize the idea of statehood. Uh, because a lot of Republicans, I think, exploit the fact that we're also used to a 50-star flag By the way, there's a 51 star flag flying outside my house right now. They say, oh, how could it possibly be a state? It sounds so weird. Douglas Commonwealth, who can even pronounce that? Well, I can, and I'm proud to show it off on my uh, dog walks around the neighborhood. And I got this shirt from a company uh, called DC Statehood Gifts and Apparel. Uh, You know, the name is what it is. They've got a ton of stuff online that's all in keeping with the statehood theme, and I definitely encourage everyone to go. So normalize Douglas Commonwealth, which will be our 51st state.
0: Mark, if there's a through line here, it has to be me walking around in my gerrymander socks by resistance by design and you walking (laughs) around in your in your D.C. statehood T-shirt. I think maybe the through line here is, friends, purchase apparel that makes people ask hard questions about what the hell you're wearing. (laughs)
1: That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shayna Roth.
0: Susan Matthews is our editorial director with June Thomas providing oversight and moral support.
1: If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate+. Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com forward slash plus.
0: We'd also love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com.
1: The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topics, same time and place.
0: Whoop, whoop.